It is that time of year again here at the Leukemia Foundation to talk about the world's greatest shave. The world's greatest shave is one of the country's longest running and most iconic fundraising campaigns, bringing Australians together to champion a good cause for over 25 years. Every year, each March, a community of trailblazers step up to shave, cut or colour their hair, all in the name of funding game-changing blood cancer support and research. Every dollar you will raise will help keep families together when they need it the most. We'll provide practical and emotional support services to patients and their families. We'll help fund cutting-edge research and campaign for change for those affected. We'll help families meet basic costs like putting food on the table, getting to hospital or paying bills. You will join a community of trailblazers determined to shape a brighter future for blood cancer patients and their families. A community that champions change, that doesn't take no for an answer. So why don't you sign up to the Leukemia Foundation's World's Greatest Shave and shave, cut or colour your hair in support of Australians facing blood cancer. Every dollar you will raise will help provide support services to patients and families and keep them together. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1800 620 420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. In our last episode, we spoke with Timothy James Bowen, who was diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in 2015. Today, we are going to hear the story of Timothy's diagnosis through the lens of his wife and carer, the incredible Christina Mullaney. Christina herself has a medical background and at the time was studying to become a doctor. Mary Ann spoke with Christina, who shares what it was like to walk with her husband through the blood cancer journey. Good morning. 
I feel quite excited to uh, welcome Christina Mullaney to the podcast series. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So do you want to share with the listeners who you are, where you're living, and who's that special person in your life who walks with blood cancer that you care for? Mm -hmm. So my name's Christina. I am almost to be a 31-year-old woman who's living on the south coast of New South Wales. We've just moved down to a little town called Mollymook um, at the beginning of this year. Um, And everything that that has brought with us moving to a new town in the time of coronavirus um and I (laughs) was the carer for my beautiful now husband um who was my best friend and partner and he was diagnosed way back in 2015 and is coming up to about four for almost five years in remission as of December this year how wonderful so you mentioned that it was nearly five years ago what type of condition was your husband your now husband diagnosed yeah. with. <laughs> yeah, so um, Tim was diagnosed just before Christmas with a form of lymphoma called primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma. Um, and it's kind of the most common type of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common type of lymphoma that um, is out there. And at the time I was living in Byron Bay as a medical student, kind of living it up in the oh. coastal. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I know the coastal kind of magic of beautiful Byron Bay. Um, oh. And Tim was living his musician life and touring the country, running backwards and forwards from visiting me up in Byron Bay and Minamara where he was living at the time. Um, and it was a really interesting thing to watch unfold because here I was learning about all of these different types of cancers and and how to treat them and how to manage them and having my boyfriend coming to visit me and because there was so much time in between seeing him there'd just be that oh almost like a a eureka moment every time I saw him just going Mm -hmm. something is not right with you like he was losing weight. He was having really nasty back pain. Um, and it was interesting because at that time, everything was explainable. We had a reason for mm. everything. You know, the back yeah. pain, he was carrying guitars and heavy sound equipment and getting on planes and sitting on buses and, you know, all of that just never sitting in the one spot, never having the same bed mm. and the same <laughs> pillow. Um, and, you know, I think losing weight, he was exercising and really trying to get fit because um, mm. he he just, you know, had this wake-up moment of, right, well, I, um, I'm a 25-year-old guy. I really just want to get into shape and, and I think it will help me with his general persona and kind of outlook that he was um, showing people as a musician. He was like, oh, it's all about kind of appeal and being a happy, fit, healthy person who also writes cool music and um, yes. you know, <laughs> plays great shows. So he, was, he really wanted to work on that area of his image. Um, so he kept coming and I was like, oh, something's just not right. Um, and so I had organised some medical, like just doctor's appointments for him and he'd be like, oh, you know, I have to cancel this one because I've got this show in, you know, Western Australia and I'll do it when I come back. I'll do it when I come back and when I've got some time. Um, and he ended up coming to see me the weekend that we were moving home for the summer from Byron Bay. We just kind of like, well, it's Christmas, it's New Year's, we want to be with our families, we'll pack up and come back. And Tim was sleeping in the bed next to me and I woke up the next morning and just felt the bed sheets and was like, you have had the most drenching night sweat that I have ever mm-hmm 
seen in my whole life and that was like gut punch moment for me it was like you know exactly what this is like put it together back pain Mm. night sweats weight loss fatigue and that was really me being like okay as soon as we get home we're seeing our doctor and we are getting stuck into this um and that would have been quite worrying for you with that yeah. medical lens. Ah, mm. Absolutely. And I think you're, you're sitting there and you don't want to scare the person that you love. No. And you're trying just to go, there is an urgency here, but I can't tell you exactly what that is because it could be all number of other things. But, you know, kind of deep you're in my sure. heart, I was like, this is wrong. This is really bad. And we need to get this seen too quickly. Um, so, luckily, the week after we came home, um, I had a beautiful, beautiful GP who was based at the Bulleye Medical Practice, which was where um, I suppose we'd kind of come from before we moved to the North Coast. Um, and I took him in and we were kind of like, okay, we just need to see exactly what's going on. And she sent him for some blood tests um, and that was kind of the beginning and that was really what got the ball rolling. We um, went to a friend's birthday party the week after and our GP called Tim and just said, hey, there's there's some really interesting things going on in your bloods. Um, I want you to come back in and we're just going to repeat them, do a few other tests and see where we go. And at that point I realised that we hadn't actually told her about the back pain. Um, and oh, so she was like, God. oh, okay, we'll just – we'll just get some imaging done and interestingly Tim had been in a car accident six months before actually on my sister's wedding day um oh no a bad one or um so enough for him to you know have the airbags deploy and oh wow stiff and sore afterwards so um he had played at a festival in the snowy mountains the day before and his aim was to just drive up that morning come to the wedding you know have a bit of a cruisy day um, mm. But just as he was coming up the hill towards Ginderbine, there was a very cute little old man in a car coming towards the snowfields and just didn't see Tim. So he T-barred him. Thankfully, everyone was fine. Oh, but he'd had goodness. just some like niggle, niggling musculoskeletal discomfort since. We're like, oh, well, mm. you know, maybe that's just, you know. Um, so you had everything attributed mm. to maybe something else. Exactly. So um, mm. we are very lucky that our GP is I don't even, I think she's probably just an angel on this earth um, who guided us through that and was very open and non-judgmental, um, at least with our initial concerns. And then when things really did start to get serious, advocated for us and got us seen so quickly. I think it was literally that first blood test to diagnosis was two weeks. Wow. Mm. Yeah, so quite a... a a sudden mm. adaptation to, wow, here we are, we've yeah. got that diagnosis and next steps, how do yeah. we take that? And that also, you know, over Christmas time where everything is shut oh. down. So she just, I don't know how she did it, but she just made it happen. I think having those really key people in your life and having trust, you know, and faith in your medical world mm. and you now a medical person Back to that quote, you know, the people who we meet in our life, who we decide to stay in our life, it's Mm. connections that we make that can really change an experience. Mm. However bad the experience may be, it can make 
a good experience when oh, you are faced with adversity. Completely. And she was our silver lining through the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, definitely mm. just kept us above water in ways that we didn't know we needed to be kept afloat. It must have been quite a surreal time for you, Christina, having all of those gut feelings mm. towards what was happening with Tim- Timothy actually come the reality. Mm. How was that? How did you cope in that moment? Also knowing the history of Timothy's family experience. So mm. your role in nurturing not only him but also his family, I would imagine that you really took the reins for a lot of the um, explanation and the navigation and, you know, the assistance into that reintroduction into that medical world mm. for that family. How mm. was that time for you? Um, I think everyone finds themselves a role in that situation and it's mm. either um, and I think you kind of go one of two ways it's really like the fight or flight response and I think for me just the way that I'd been brought up and the way that sat best with me at that time was okay let's fight this let's do whatever we need to do to be able to get through this as a family unit and so for me my role in our I suppose unit at that time was the real explainer and the translator from the medical side to the real person side Um, and I think for me that gave me such purpose because you're sitting there and you can't do anything as a care you're not the one in the bed and you're not the one who has to make decisions about the way that you're treated you're I mean you're obviously a part of that discussion but you're not the one who signs the paper who says yes pull that poison into my body so that I can fight the cancer that's in there Mm-hmm. So for me, it was really, okay, how do I arm myself with information and how do I enable what I found to flow forward in a way that will give some comfort and some understanding and some relief to not only Tim, but I think in particular his family. Because Tim was very, very stoic and really didn't want to put any pressure on his family. And he was, I don't even think he cried or really got sad after the diagnosis. Wow. Um, I think I cried once and then it was like, okay, together, let's battle stations, let's do this. Whereas his poor mum and dad, it was like a, this is our second baby that's been diagnosed with a cancer. And not only have they been diagnosed with cancer, but they've been diagnosed at a time where existentially it's much more complex to place. Like as a kid, if they don't know what's going on, often you're just like, yeah, that was a hard time in your life. And there's some ramifications as you get older, but the actual chemotherapy process from research is has kind of been shown to not be quite as hard. Um, mm. But when you're an adult and you've got this kind of, oh, I'm struggling with my own mortality, I'm struggling with the things that I haven't done, that I have done, it just makes it, I think, much more The adaptation difficult. is yeah. a lot. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you should... You should say that, and I'm sure that um, you, you've been introduced in your medical world, you know, the that 7-Up series where they interview the child 0 to 7 and then 7 to 14. Mm, yeah. And you look at a child, we all have that child within, and the fundamentals and the most important, the foundations of a child's happiness is very much invested in that need and nurturing of a sense of belonging and if they know that they're loved and they know that they feel a a place of safeness a place of nurturing 
they actually adapt quite well. Mm. I mean, I've witnessed children with Hickman lines and that sort of thing go through treatment. And if they have mum and dad there and siblings there and they're actually happy and they live in the moment. Mm. And I, I sometimes look at that and statistics show that children do you know, quite well mm. with treatment. Whereas at what point in our, um, you know, in our growing years do we take on worry, do we take on a whole heap of things? But um, I guess for Timothy, you mentioned that he didn't, he didn't cry and, you know, he was quite stoic. Would you suggest that that's attributable to he actually has a great sense of love and safety around him, those fundamental foundations of a human being. Mm. And I think we you think I I think definitely his mum and dad are two of the most supportive people you will ever find on this planet. And his older sister as well, from having been through the cancer journey, there were all of these, you know, interesting things that they could share together that was like, oh, don't eat that. It's going to cause you mucositis to get worse. Or, you know, eat oh. this. I found this really <laughs> helpful. And so it was almost like Claire had these little pearls of wisdom that she could share with Tim that brought them closer together as well in that experience. Um, and I think as well, Tim and I at this stage had been together for almost five years. And so, and we'd been friends for 10 years before that. So our little foundation was just like, we know that we are surrounded by love and support. And if we need anything, all we have to do is think the thought and someone's there with us trying to sort out. Oh, lovely. So we were very, very lucky. <clears throat> Did you ever have any challenges, Christina? I know sometimes with couples, and it may not be your experience, but uh, when you are a partner, regardless of regardless of the age of the individual who's diagnosed, sometimes parental, you know, that you'll always be the baby, you'll always be mm. the, you know, the, the child. Did you ever have any conflict of communication or um, struggles with? family in how you were caring for Timothy if you were together at the time or um, some, you know, some families have some communication difficulties. Well, did you struggle any at any time with communication or um, ownership of who's looking after who the best or those type of situations which can often normally happen mm-hmm. with families and with partners and that sort of thing? I think we were really lucky um, in that me personally, I didn't have any issues with how everything kind of unfolded. We were, we moved back in with Tim's mum and dad um, purely just because it was so much nicer to have more people in the house and more people to, I suppose, share that burden of caring for Tim and for Tim to have company and, and, you know, all those really lovely things so that he was always constantly surrounded by love and was never really alone. Um, So I think for me, we always had a really good, I suppose, kind of forward and back process of communication where if we were worried or concerned, we were able to talk about it quite openly before it became a problem. I think it was probably more difficult for poor Tim's mum and dad to talk with Tim because it's it's always you know that child parent relationship where even if they're an adult you want to be there and to do all the things that you you hope that you know that they need doing for them whereas I think a lot of the time Tim just you know wanted to sleep or to 
um, you know, watch a movie and is gorgeous. Parents be like, what do you need? Do you need a cup of tea? Do you need some dinner? Do you need some pie food? Like, what do you need? And it's, and I think everyone goes through that stage where they do. you try to find your purpose and you're like, how do I help the person that is, that I love so much who's sitting here in front of me going through this awful treatment mm. and I can't do anything about it? What are the little things that I can do around it to make it um easier I guess um and just to smooth that transition from being totally healthy adult to cancer patient and back again um and I think that dynamic was a little bit more difficult for them purely just because they're parents and they want to protect their baby um absolutely where, they fix it apparently. yeah exactly and and it, when it's cancer you can't fix it like it's it's an internal no. battle and it's a fight that they have to do on their own obviously with support from you but you have no active role in the like in the biology of the fight and i think for them they found that so difficult to mm. sit on the sidelines for the second time absolutely and and watch you know their son go there would have been a lot of grief involved mm. in that for them as well absolutely. and maybe you know as parents you look at well what have we done to have caused this this mm. is our two babies so all of that making meaning of what the what happens in life, totally. I think, is a natural go-to for anybody Absolutely. to have a deeper understanding. So with you, Christina, did you um, did you continue to do your medical um, studies? Did you just move forward? Or? Um, and I think that was probably the reason why I didn't fall into that same position of just wanting to exist with him all day, every day, just make sure that, you know, you're watching him breathe and you're making sure he's eating food that he, he needs to eat, um, which I think definitely gave me purpose and gave me an outlet because it was like if I'm working on being the best doctor that I can be, then I'm more useful in this family unit and I'm also not driving Tim mad by being at home with him every day. Yeah, going. There's a lot of truth in that. Mm, there is a lot of truth in that. Because we, and I think as a couple, that really helped us because it gave us our space to exist in the worlds that we were living in. You know, Tim is as a cancer patient and existing from appointment to you know chemotherapy rounds to. Um, you know, GP follow-ups and all that kind of thing. And me on the other side just going, okay, well, how to, if we can, turn this experience into something positive on the other end of this. Um, and, yeah, like I said, I think I would have driven him absolutely bonkers if I was at home with him every day. So I'm very, very grateful that I was able to continue working towards something Um and, and really just giving my brain something else to focus on. Um, and it wasn't, I, it. Mm, and it, I don't think it was necessarily a distraction. It was more, okay, all of this energy that I've got thinking about how worried I am about him and how much I wish it was me in the bed instead of him going, okay, well, there's got to be some good that comes out of this. How can you channel everything that you're feeling into learning and then on the other side of this, hopefully use that to help people in the same situation have a better understanding of what it feels like to be here 
And I think for me as well as a doctor to understand what it feels like to be in that carer role so that when I'm faced with a similar situation in the future, if it's, you know, me giving a diagnosis to someone or me working in in a ward where there are people like that who are in a similar situation to where we were, just having that added level of empathy and understanding of what are you worrying about what you know a thousand thoughts are going around in your head at this stage and how can I give you some solace and some peace with the situation and how do we turn it into something as best we can that that is a positive um and I have this really bizarre story that I'm sure this family won't mind me sharing um in that when a couple of years after Tim was diagnosed and I actually went back and did a term as a resident in the oncology board where he was treated um oh, wow which was did that bubble up a, an over emotion for you or? big time yeah I didn't think it was going to I thought it would be kind of a healing process um going back and working with all the nurses who looked after him working with the doctors who treated him but it was complex big like it was a very interesting I suppose introspective time for me because for a lot of people um, you definitely don't feel the impact of what you've been through at the time. And so for me I think that was the time that I felt it. It was two years down the line and it was like, oh, okay. Like even just walking in the first day and seeing a patient in the bed, similar age to Tim, in the bed that he was diagnosed in and I literally had to walk out of the room and just be like, I need a minute to just sit here and go, okay, how far have we come from that day? How much you've grown, the strength that you've had, and And, still it sits with you. Oh, it sits with you. And I think that's a thing. Mm -hmm. Recovery for everyone is not linear. And I think that's a really important thing to understand. And I talk about this with some of my GP patients who are cancer survivors. And it's there, you cannot expect that every day is going to be a little bit better. And and for a lot of the time it is. But um, it's like it swings and roundabouts and it's up and down. Nice. And it's just it's being okay with that process and just going, your journey is your journey. No one expects it to go in a certain way and I think you can't expect it to go in a certain way and it's just being okay with how you're feeling in that moment and validating it and respecting it and going there will be better days there will be worse days but every day is a gift because you've beat it or you know you're in remission and you have all of this beautiful extra time to process and enjoy the life that you have because you went through that experience. That's beautifully said, Christina. And, you know, in, in many ways, I look at people like yourself and Tim, Timothy, he said to call him Timothy, <laughs> Timothy. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, that it is so real, that emotion that's just bubbled up. Mm. Like anything in life, when we love greatly, we hold things greatly. Mm. And when we remember, we have this big vessel of memories within us and your wedding day if you sit in that moment and reflect it will bobble up a whole different memory for you Mm. but I'm glad that you shared that and I love that you've shared the honesty in your reflection in a lot that you've said just in the last five minutes Mm. um 
giving yourself permission to pursue a career that you were passionate about. You use the words um, passion uh, and purpose. Purpose was the word that you used, and and I I want to celebrate that for you because I do I do believe that us as individuals, if we follow something that gives us purpose, that gives us pa- that we're passionate about. We take ourselves to an emotional place that gives us strength. And then when we are in situations or faced with situations that we haven't chosen for ourselves, that sense of belonging to something or giving ourselves permission to engage in something that we value, it's a hidden strength that gets us through that time. And I think we were really lucky as well because for Tim, and I'm sure this is the same for a lot of cancer patients, every day is kind of a repeat of the last in a sense because it's you're you know you're either on chemotherapy or waiting for your counts to drop in order for you to recover to have your next round of chemotherapy and for Tim he he really wasn't able to do a whole lot he spent because he was getting lumbar punctures and having you know Mm. post-puncture headaches for most of the subsequent weeks before the next one he spent most of his day flat on his back, playing his guitar, you know, scrolling the internet, watching videos and movies. And I think it was a really nice thing for me to come home and be like, this is what I learned today or this is a person that I met today and to have... Contributing something yeah, different. And to have, you know, some of the outside world coming in to join him in that place when he couldn't really be a part of it himself because of his own safety. Um and so I think that was really special and he was really happy, I think, in that stage where if we couldn't be together, then I was still doing something that was rewarding and validating and giving me, I suppose, some peace and quiet mentally in a turbulent time. Did you find yourself having to uh, <laughs> support him emotionally was that ever a struggle for you like having difficult conversations or searching for moments where you didn't quite know how to maybe get him out of a little bit of a sad Mm. spot that he may have been in or even um, I know that uh, some carers struggle with uh, supporting their patient to re-engage in exercise and movement to Mm. gain strength and moving forward did you have any struggles with Timothy in that regard? I think we were really lucky when he was actually in the throes of treatment in that our kind of ups and downs with our mood were very compatible so when I was up he was down and we had enough you know mental brain strength and emotional um, I suppose capabilities to pull each other out of that and even if even if it and I I know that that's not the case for everyone and we were incredibly lucky we just seemed to move in sync during that so that the couple's waltz yeah exactly (laughs) exactly so that when it was difficult for him it was easy for me to be the emotional support and when it was difficult for me it was easy for him to be that emotional support and I think we've always because we've been friends for such a long time it was really easy for us to have difficult conversations because we've had them before, not necessarily the life or death conversation, but we've had their, you know, I'm moving overseas and, you know, I want to study in this place or, you know, you're going out on tour. So we've really had separate lives that we bring back together in our safe space. Um, Because, you know, a doctor's life and a 
musicians' life are not particularly compatible in terms of They're the quite, time. Quite different. <laughs> in terms of the time that you spend in the one spot. So my day is very regimented and very um, I suppose predictable in a way. Not necessarily what's going to happen, but the way that it is run and the structure of my day is much more predictable. Whereas Tim's will be, you know, I might be overseas or I might be in this certain part of the country or I might be riding with someone or, you know, if I don't get out of bed, nothing gets done because everything's self-directed um, as a creative in Australia. Um, so I think we were very lucky that we had separate lives and our communication was not always fabulous, but definitely, I think, strong and well-grounded so that when we did have difficulties and we were away from each other, you know, Tim in Nashville or me here in Australia, we had good, almost like bones of our relationship to just go, okay, well, how do we work through this and process what we're feeling and and how do we be more self-aware and going, this is the situation. I'm not actually angry at you or disappointed in you. It's, you know, I'm frustrated with the logistics as opposed to frustrated with the relationship. Okay, that's mm. very honest. Um, Tim mentioned that he participated or sang in a concert whilst he had was connected up to um, some treatment. <laughs> yeah. was, that, was that a worrying time for you? I don't think so. I think you're just no. so grateful that they're feeling good enough to do things. And I think if it's, if it's safe for them and it gives them joy, you just can't live your life wrapped in cotton wool even if you're a cancer patient. Um, That's a lovely, yeah. I ask for golden nuggets. Mm. And I'm just going to ask you to repeat that that again. Yeah. Purely because, Christina, I think um, a lot of carers that I meet have do worry about their patient mm. and that sometimes where conflict comes up in a relationship because the patient may want to participate or partake or engage in something that the carer feels just overwhelmed with fear and anxiety in relation to the potential for disease infections, those sorts of things. So what you've just said uh, I think is just that recognition of what brings someone joy and happiness. Mm. And I think, I think that's really it, like, Life is still happening when you're a cancer patient. There are still beautiful days and beautiful experiences. And just because you're going through therapy doesn't mean that they should stop. Um, and I think it's really finding those little areas of magic in your life that can give you, I suppose when you look up back on that experience, their silver lining or your little golden shade where you go, okay, what was what was really good about this or what was special? I mean, often they're the things that you take away. The fact that, you know, you were 10 days into your chemotherapy round feeling rubbish, but you still got up and you sang on stage, which is the other thing that sets your heart on fire. Or, you know, that um, <laughs> you managed to eat a meal for the first time in the day and just in, and enjoying it and having it taste nice and it's I think that's it it's really just going what are your small wins or you know what are your good things that you take away from each day and that was something that Tim and I would often do lying in bed at night it was like okay might have been a shit day but what were three things that you're grateful for today and I think for us that 
mindfulness built resilience because it was looking back on the day and going, even though it felt rubbish and, you know, you felt nauseous all day and you had a headache all day, there were still good things in it. Mm, and I think that's true. And I think for us, just having a little, and it's really just spin, isn't it? It's how do you put a positive spin onto the experience and it changes the way that it sits in your mind and it changes the way that you heal from it afterwards. Oh, that's valuable. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I know that a lot of carers struggle with when their partner or patient is having some steroid treatment, mm. their, you know, their personality changes and they're edgy <laughs> and, you know, they're up for an extended period of times and they're restless <laughs> and that impacts yes. on the on the carer because they're exhausted, mm. they're emotionally exhausted. Did you find th- those times a struggle? Tim just got hungry. So that was oh. easier to deal with. Um, <laughs> Tim is well known for his appetite in amongst all of our circles. Um, so <laughs> the steroid rage was a real thing. It is kind of hangry times a thousand. Um, a roy rage. Were, yeah, exactly. And there were often times where, because Tim and I were very lucky, we spent his first month of hospital together there, um, which is very that. unusual. And I think they were very kind and compassionate to us to enable us to do that. Um, but it meant that when he was on steroids, he'd often poke me awake and be like, Steve, Steve, are you hungry? <laughs> it's three in the morning. I've been asleep for the last three hours. I'm not hungry. Are you hungry? And he's like, yeah, can you just go and get me a snack? <laughs> that I think we definitely experienced um the grand culinary I I don't even know what it been the grand culinary joys of Wollongong um at that time because you know when you've got a cancer patient in hospital food's not the most gratifying meal to eat Tim would be like oh I feel like this and we'd be like yep cool no worries we'll like whatever you need to eat to get you through this round of chemotherapy, we'll, we'll source it. We'll source it. <laughs> so I you, think definitely easier to deal with someone hungry because you can treat that than someone who's, you know, going through some of the other side effects of steroids. Yes, I have had people mm. paint a house, like paint oh. a room. and wow. oh, Yes. I'm very impressed. Quite I mean, extreme. Tim definitely did have grand ideas on steroids. He um, was going to start a watch company. He was going to start a leather company. <sighs> what else was there? I so did he like, make you a leather bag? Um, he did, actually. He made me a leather pouch for um, just, you know, phone, keys, wallet, that kind of thing. It's beautiful. I Lovely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky thing. That's right. He did actually tell me about his um, entrepreneurial mm. pursuits. I know. Steroids unlocked an extra little spin <laughs> in the inside. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds to me that you're you've got a lovely, even keel, peaceful disposition, Christina. So you were able to look at those times without too much angst or mm. dis- disruption yourself. Yeah. Some 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 carers really struggle, but it really uh, sounds to me you've got quite a peaceful. Mm. I think. Inher- what do you think helped you in that? I think inherently, I'm an optimist. And there was that constant belief in the back of my mind that everything was going to work out. Um, And I think being a scientist, I really relied heavily on information. And I was lucky that 
I knew how to research and I knew how to find reliable information. And for me, a lot of that was, you know, primary metastinal B-cell lymphoma is a very treatable illness, even though it's gotten so far. And like Tim was stage 4B with clots building up in his arms because he had wow. such massive masses in his chest. It And, it, you know, things looked dire at the beginning. But I think once he started on chemotherapy and we were able to have a bit more brain space to understand the disease a bit more, it was, you know, 95% cure rate or at least remission rate and then relapses are treatable not quite as as good as the first time around but definitely treatable and I think that it gave us a lot of hope in that it's much easier to be part of the 95 percent than the five percent um mm. but you know that said if statistics are still you either beat it or you don't it's one or zero that's how it goes so I think if you've got a little bit more information in the back of your head that gives you some, and you can process that information yeah. properly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that is a. You understand that, and I think, and I think for me, being surrounded by medical people that I could debrief with a lot of the time, that was super helpful. Um, and well, it diffused probably all oh, of the worries totally. that you may have had. Yeah, was, I was able to talk to them with, you know, a. a colleague I, th I suppose for want of a better word they're all you know my best friends in the entire world but someone who's medically minded who understands where you're coming from and I debrief and do it away from Tim and then come home and have free brain space to just be like this is my you know love of my life is going through chemotherapy and I don't need to worry because I've worried earlier <laughs> today <laughs> <laughs> with, with somebody else hearing my worries as opposed to the one as that I and that is that, that there's a lot to be said about the to re, the the release of worries i often share with carers as well as patients if you have anything that's trapped between the ears once you even hear yourself articulate that worry it diffuses it now, even though you haven't received a response or anything mm -hmm. it allows yourself to process what that what's going on in your head which can mm -hmm. sometimes help and it so with that cycle really of that constant yes. rumination of the same thought going around and around your head. When you've spoken it out loud, there's something so cathartic about that that Absolutely. your brain just goes, okay, great, that worry has been addressed. Don't need to deal with it for, you know, the next couple of hours or however long it is. And even just having space from that thought for a short, short amount of time gives you so much relief and Absolutely. really changes the way that you deal with that worry, I think. Um, so very important to have outlets and outlets that understand you oh. and where you come So each, um, each person that, uh, that, you know, that I have engaged with, whether they be patient or carer, I ask mm. them, do they have any golden nuggets for other carers um, that uh, would be lovely takeaways, would be, you know, opportunities for them to sit and reflect on where they're at with their person going through yeah. blood cancer treatment. Would you have any key ones that you'd like to share? I know we haven't touched on mm. future and relationships and conversations and, you know, no-go conversations, mm. um, uh, recognising that everybody, well, not everybody, but some people really struggle with the difficult conversations, like mm. even bringing up we need to get an enduring power of attorney and wills and, 
and you know people in your age group look at relation uh look at family look at mm. you know relationship choices for the future and that sort yeah. of thing um I, I mean i think for us honesty has been the foundation of who we are and how we approach the world around us um and which has just made it easier for us to say what we need to say and to give the support that each of us have needed at that time, whether it's, you know, yes, I validate what you're feeling and I feel it too, or if it's Mm. like, that's not a rational thing to think, get it out of your brain Um, (laughs) and being able to really... Liberatingly. Yeah, and just like lovingly cut through where you're probably set on autopilot um and so I think I think at least for us the big foundation was being honest and saying what you mean because a lot of the time you try to phrase things in ways that you don't think are going to be quite as confronting or hurtful but sometimes they need to be confronting and hurtful for you to process them um and I think for Tim and I we had a particular moment where we were going back after his relapse scare to get the results from his heart surgeon so he'd essentially had more spots pop up on his pet scan and got biopsies of each of them and we were driving back in the next day and he's like what if it's back and I just sat there and said look what if it is we don't know that now and there's no real reason for us to worry at this stage I think we just need to try and keep our heads level until we know for sure and Tim just turned to me and said thank you for telling me it's not going to be all okay or that it's going to be fine um because I think you can get stuck in their bulletproof optimism that isn't always reassuring um that's so true having that raw reflection of feelings mm -hmm. I think is really essential really important um no um exactly what you've just said having that 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 honesty i think gives an individual a permission to share a negative emotion which i think is as equally as important Mm. as i mean a lot of patients have shared with me that they get frustrated with always having to they feel like smacking the face of someone who (laughs) says to them be positive they think what are you saying (laughs) yeah it's 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 an irritating mm. use of word. Mm. And I think that's it. I think you can be optimistic without being positive mm. in, a, in a sense because um, I, think, I think your general outlook, if it's an optimistic one, then the way that your experiences are coloured as they come in is very different. Um, but in, in those darker moments, I think you just got to validate the way that you feel and allow the person who's going through it to validate them and because you know that that feeling that they're sitting with is not going to be there forever it's it's you know like any emotion they come and they go Mm. and we feel them for a reason and I think it's being a lot of the time it's just being okay with sitting with uncomfortable feelings which is definitely a process and in and a a practice that you have to be able to do um, but I think for us, that really brought us closer together because we could just say, look, today's not a good day. How are you feeling? Um, and we had, I think we had this moment where it'd be like, okay, real talk, checking it <laughs> out. Like, and it was the honest, 
how are you doing? Where mm. we'd literally sit there and not try and keep it surface. We'd have yeah. really long existential discussions about like, what do you feel about dying? Like, is that something that you've thought about in this process? Is that wow. you know, something that I've thought about in this process as, as caring for Tim? Um, and I think that because we'd gone so dark and so deep and we were not not used to talking about death and dying, but we were used to talking about hard things, that it made it easier to understand if that was a fear for each of us. And I think once mm. you get that off your chest, you're like, oh, okay, like we're worried about the same thing. Now that we've said it, we can put the lock back in that box and just go, okay, done. We've like dealt with that particular almost like a little storm cloud that was hanging overhead mm. and, and go, okay, all right, how do we move on from here and keep, keep things moving? What a lovely connection, a deeper connection that you both would have had having had those conversations, mm. I would imagine. And a I, real... Oh, mm. I'm totally with you because I think it's a really hard thing to talk about. We're not very good yes. at talking about the end of life. We're really good at talking about the beginning of life. Um, and I think... I think for me as well, having done quite a lot of palliative care and, and difficult conversations with el- like you know older patients that you're caring for in hospital, there comes a point where you sit down and you're like, okay, we want to understand what's important for you in these moments. We're not saying that now are your final moments, but if we get there, how do we talk about this in a way that is empowering instead of scary? Um, and they, they do this quite a lot in Asian cultures where death is just such a part of life and, you know, the family connection and, and you know, multiple generations of families live together forever. So everyone's exposed to, you know, I suppose that, that process where in the Western world we're much more not closed-minded but we've evolved in a culture where death is removed, I think, mm. from us in a lot of ways. It's not handled well. You're quite no. right. And going back to exactly what you said at the start, it's the the people that you surround yourself with that make yeah, a, very wor- important. a worthwhile life and, a, and a, mm. a life that gives you great joy and great validation in having lived it with the people. And I think that's um, a lot of what we've talked about this year as as just humans generally is, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter what you do in your life, it matters who you do it with. Um, so true. And I think this this year in particular with, you know, closed borders or the state of our international, I, I, I guess even just the international state of the world at the moment just means mm, that mm. all of our interpersonal relationships we've had a chance to focus on because we've realised how important that they, they are and how much mm, absolutely us and how, yeah, just how, I think how much validation a good relationship brings to your life and how much, um, yeah, just a little, value. little, yeah, a little bit of value, value. a sprinkle of magic mm-hmm. to the way that your life oh, yeah. runs. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, with um, Timothy's creation of his songs that he's written about you, <laughs> um, I know I personally witnessed how how that um, um one of the songs that he sang on The Voice and it was particularly one written for you. Mm. 
how that bubble of emotion can come up quite um, quite quickly. He mentioned in his meeting with me that uh, his quite a lot of his songs um, are about you and him mm. and his relationship with you. So you've been a significant strength together, really, as a couple. Mm. You you know the the bond of love that you both share is is unique. Um, as friends, and then and and then now as husband and wife, you're very lucky, Christina. I am very lucky, and yeah, very truly blessed that every day. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Are there any other things that you'd like to share in this moment that you think would be of value to people who are listening in? Um, I think uh, going back to your gold nuggets before, as a carer, yes. I think it's. I suppose some of the things that we've brought up are just the really trying hard not to protect the one that you love from the outside world um because even though a lot of the time it feels like you're protecting them sometimes you're putting a limitation on the experiences they're able to have during that cancer journey so if there's lovely moments or you know beautiful moments outside that they could be experiencing it's enabling yourself a little bit of a, a leap of faith and saying that even though you are going through cancer and chemotherapy, there are so many beautiful moments that you can make and, and experiences that you can have together to continue, you know, living life even while you feel like your world stopped. Um, and I think as a carer, it's, it's trying to limit the pressure that you put on yourself, which is the hardest thing in the world to do because all you want to do is mm-hmm. be, be all and everything for that person. But I think what I've come to realise is that no one person in this world is everything to another person. There's so many different facets of our life and different people that play different roles. Um, so I guess if you are able to find comfort and strength in the role that you play and helping to facilitate those beautiful other relationships that your loved one has that give them, you know, the other little sparkling components of their big machine, <laughs> um, yeah. then that's, then that's really, really wonderful. But I, I think that's it. It's it's trying not to be too hard on yourself and trying not to put too much pressure on yourself to be something and letting letting you find your own groove and dynamic in this new experience that you've been given. Because I think, I definitely think for us it was a gift on many levels because um, we definitely would not be the people that we are now without it um and I think we would definitely not have the insight into each other that we have now without it and we're grateful for that and I think Tim probably said the same thing that we've had long discussions Mm. about would we take it back and would we you know erase that experience from our lives and both of us have just said well no I think it gave us more than it took from us um and and really showed us who we are and what we want to prioritise in our lives going forward. How wonderful. Um, what an insightful couple you are. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing your insights, listening to your story. I think you've got enormous value to give to those who are listening. The different things that you've touched on just now have been some lovely messages that I think people will really really value. Um, Thank you, Christina, for sharing some time with me here this morning.
That brings us to the end of this episode today. We hope that you've found it helpful in some way. And if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to call 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.